From Politico, I'm Ryan Heath, and this is Global Insider. Unless you've been living under a rock, you've been reading stories in the media over the past few months about how so many businesses want to hire workers, but aren't able to find them. The pandemic has left the country facing a labor shortage. Some businesses are having trouble hiring enough workers to reopen fully. According to several job sites and recruiting firms, many job seekers won't even consider jobs that pay less than $15 an hour anymore. Workers, their demands and fears are now at the center of political conversations around the world. But who's driving those conversations? And where do the traditional representatives of workers, trade unions, fit in? I traveled to Brussels to meet up with Sharon Burrow. We want a new social contract that makes sure we leave no one behind and much, much more. Sharon is in charge of the biggest workers' rights organization in the world, the International Trade Union Confederation, with more than 200 million members. That means when 6,000 migrant workers from East Asia die helping to construct World Cup stadiums in Qatar, Sharon is one of the few leaders who can influence a country like Qatar or Saudi Arabia to change their policies. But she's also in the unique position of having a seat at the world's richest tables, including chairing the World Economic Forum in Davos. So how does she deal with the whiplash that comes with operating in both of those worlds? We both started out as outsiders, growing up in rural Australia, six hours drive from Sydney. But we both ended up insiders, sitting next to the most powerful people in the world. My first memory of you was I was... Always uh, fun, Ryan. It is. Well, see, you won't know this memory because you were doing important things. And I was a left-wing protester outside the World Economic Forum when it came on tour to Melbourne, if you remember. I remember the protests very well. Concrete blocks were hurled at police and buildings were badly damaged. The repercussions of last night's wild scenes will continue for months as protesters pursue legal action against what they say was excessive police violence. We were determined not to let anyone in to this World Economic Forum and the, the billionaires and the plutocrats of the world. But we thought you were a good representative of ordinary people. So we let you in through the barricades. That and then you up. had to let me out. There was a famous moment where I went in and told them that they were failing uh, people globally as well as uh, domestically. And then I came out to address our people, the trade union mob on the streets. And the barricades were so strong, I had to say, actually, I'm one of you. I was sent in there, but please let me out through the <laughs> barricades. I remember. And then the horror of those horses. Yeah. I'll never forget the trampling of people by those horses. Yes. Um, I was there for that too. I, I Actually, I always feel in two minds when I go to Davos because I'm there and I'm thinking about who's the next billionaire I can talk to because I need to talk to them because they have power. And then I'm sitting there thinking like, what am I doing in this room? And I'm wondering, do you ever feel like an insider in those groups of people now that you've had to deal with them for so long? Or are you always feeling like an outsider because of your job? So first of all, as trade unionists, I think you always have to play the outsider-insider game. If you don't have people on the outside demanding change, you have no legitimacy on the inside to negotiate for change. And also, you have no power, frankly. In Davos, the uh, when I was actually uh, shockingly asked to be a co-chair, 
I gave the closing address. Sharon, please. Thanks. And I actually described Davos as a tale of two cities or two movements. The courage to name the problem with the theme of a fractured world to set the focus for the forum, it did. But also it underscored the demand for a negotiated global solution to that future. You do have companies who are progressive, who understand that they need to change, that they need to have climate plans, plans for rights, minimum living wages. They need to fight with us for social protection because it's a resilience foundation, for peace and democracy because business can't operate outside of robust democracies with any certainty or security, or at least without corruption. But there's another group, and you can probably describe them better than me, Ryan, because I called them the mergers and acquisitions crowd. Mm -hmm. But you could equally say they're the people hanging on to the shareholder model as a primacy. So profit at any cost, all profit to the shareholders, no consciousness about what that's driven in terms of historic inequity and the distrust in business that's arisen from that. So in that context, Davos is, it is indeed one of those areas of conflict. I've always said to people, you can do exactly what you said. We take a team of labor leaders in where they can find the people who want to. We can do more work negotiating workplace outcomes for workers in a week than you could do in a year. You can lobby more governments in a week around policy on the big issues of the day. But equally, you never feel comfortable because I think many people there will never feel like they're insiders or would never want to. But is it now a forum that's had its day? I think the jury's out on that. Do we need it? I'm not sure, but it is true that they bring a lot of different voices to the table now. And Greta Thunberg is a great example there. I met Greta at Davos, And she follows you on Twitter. And I'd like to invite up our panelists, Greta Thunberg, the world-renowned climate activist. And last but not least, Sharon Burrow, the General Secretary of the International Trade Union Confederation. Well, we actually met in a forum around oceans. And I've always thought that the focus on oceans was the poor cousin of the sustainability or climate debate. Because I don't think enough is understood about the tipping points, to quote a a Greta line, and the heating of the atmosphere if we're in fact destroying the oceans. Greta is an amazing woman. The world admires her. But I also think that more broadly than Greta, the voice of youth has indeed shifted the, if you like, the outsider legitimacy Mm -hmm. that reminds us all of the expectations that we have to take with us into any discussion. And right now, governments are failing the world in terms of ambition. That's exactly what I was going to bring up, because I feel we are now pointed in the right direction. There is some 
distant 2050 and 2060 targets that are the useful targets. And I am quite worried about what is happening in the COP26 global climate process. It's supposed to be a leap forward in November when there's the big meeting in Glasgow. And I feel like all of the intermediate steps are not filled in. But you're in these discussions on a a weekly basis. What's your temperature reading of how we're going? So I think you have to look at even just one report, the IPCC report. The urgency is well established. In fact, I started reading IPCC reports when I was in Australia. It's my first year as ACTU president. Okay, so ACTU, for everyone listening, uh, that's Australian Council of Trade Unions. And are we talking the 90s now or just in 2000? Just 2000. And it was the first time I'd read it cover to cover. It was always there in my mind, but I can't pretend that climate was the greatest priority when I took over the ACTU. But I remember reading that report and all I could see is this would be the greatest systemic change that would happen in our lifetime. And when you read it today, you think, oh my God, why did we waste so much time? However, we're all optimists, so we will fight on. So what we're encouraging people to do with our focus on all sectors must transition, of course, fossil fuels, but also were quality jobs in renewable energy. Mm-hmm. This is painful. Like coal was painful and still is painful to have to go and talk to coal miners and tell them that they're fantastic, they built their communities, but now they have to rebuild them with different industry bases. And do you get a lot of pushback? Like I can see you going into fear. those workplaces yeah. and saying it, yeah. but I can imagine there are a bunch of union leaders that say, we're going to be able to protect 80% of these jobs. We're going to slow the change and, and that's the way we're going to support you rather than any of the tough medicine of well, we tragically, need to retrain you. That's the language of many of the fossil fuel companies. And so, of course, when people work for a company, there's a loyalty base. So it is the job of myself and other trade union leaders. You can't lie to workers. You know, we have to base our demands for secure future on the basis of what's real. So that's why we fought for, you know, a good 15 years to get just transition in the Paris Climate Agreement. We failed in Copenhagen. And, uh, and now, of course, we educate, train, promote partnerships, join uh, movements to get workers and their unions at the table to design the transition with just transition measures so no one is left behind. But people make the mistake of thinking we do the job on coal, it's done. Every sector has to transition. But what is the map for both jobs and employment? And that's what we call just transition. So for us, this is a major issue. Joining up this jobs and climate line of thinking, what do you see out there? Is there a country, a government, a leader, that you think everyone should be copying because they're getting it right on those questions? Well, I definitely think there are missed opportunities. We have only 40% of the 3 billion people or so in the global labour market in formal areas of contract. And even then, more than a third of those are in precarious, low-paid, often unsafe work, the victims of a hidden workforce in our supply chains, You know, they're actually workers who are working for 
the new and emerging platform businesses across all sectors of and occupations, but they're informal businesses, so the employers are taking no responsibility. And in addition to that, we've got 60% of the global labour market that is actually working informally. This is a sector of desperation. Of all the conversations I've ever had with you, that is the statistic that I still remember. Like any time I walk into a it's room with you, it's to think, oh, wow, six out of 10 people do not have health care, do not have no, unemployment insurance. They don't, yeah. have, uh, they don't have any rights. There's no rule of law. And indeed, they have no social protection. You know, 63% of the world's people have little or no social protection and certainly no income security or universal access to health in a world where it's governments simply say they can't afford to fund it. Well, we just did a research report that shows that for every percent spent, it will return 1.9%. So it builds basic businesses. Now, those poorest countries need support to establish systems, and that's why we're fighting with the um, with the Human Rights uh, Commissioner for um, uh, Poverty, indeed, to actually promote social protection, and a number of governments. But a social protection fund is still far from delivered. A little bit like the promised uh, money for climate mitigation and adaptation. Yeah. So we've we've got a long way to go, but we know that this builds basic economies. We know it builds a resilience floor for any you know, just a bulwark against future shocks, whether they're national or global, whether they're economic, whether they're climate, whether they're societal, or whether they're health-related. And so these things have to be rethought of as we don't build back better, but we in fact construct a more inclusive future that actually has the foundations in place. You were talking with some Qatari trade union members when we came into the room. And that's a country where you have high amounts of indentured labor, people working in extreme conditions, building, frankly, ridiculous stadiums in the the desert. So I imagine you've had some struggles even having communication with workers in that country. How do you balance or fit into your head in one day people fighting for things that other countries take for granted in the US versus the needs of what your European members want versus Qataris who have their documents locked away and are baking in tin sheds with no rights, building stadiums? Well, it's a very simple question for me. Where are working people at risk? Where do you have to fight for and demand rights? And Qatar is a particular story. We identified Qatar, in fact, the Gulf states, to be fair, as, uh, you know, a group of countries perpetuating modern slavery over 10 years ago when I came to this job. However, if you'd have asked me, you know, could I communicate with the Qatari government or a worker in Qatar 10 years ago, I'd have said in a clandestine way. So I went into the country with my team for every year, a couple of times a year, and we documented what was going on. We used the FIFA World Cup, of course, as leverage to bring this to the attention of the world. Now, it doesn't mean that it was any worse than in the UAE, which is still running a kafala system and is in our target sites now, or Saudi Arabia or other areas of the Gulf states. But the Qataris decided they would negotiate 
with the ILO, the International Labour Organization, which is the Parliament of Global Standards, and of course, ourselves. And since then, the laws in Qatar are vastly different. The kafala system has ended. So what I was talking to the government about was in fact their incredibly humane support for the ongoing struggle for us to get our labour leaders out of Qatar for safety. Now that couldn't have happened 10 years ago, but now it shows you the trust and the relationships unions build with employers and with governments where you make advances on rights, the rule of law, social justice, whatever the issues might be. Now, you know, Qatar's still struggling to implement all of its laws, but the goodwill and the partnerships are there. So we wish that Saudi would complete their journey. They've made some steps towards recognising the freedom from the kafala system or ownership by employers. They've made some rights, uh, some movement towards the independence of trade union voices, but much more is necessary in legal terms. And the UAE is really the standout. They will tell you that, in fact, they uh, have made progress. We just saw, you know, an incredible number, hundreds of African refugees deported, some being tortured to indeed get on the planes with cattle prods and tasers (laughs) and yeah and so they're in our sights Mm -hmm. it's that simple so you know it's all about building a consciousness establishing the right space having the relationships to actually negotiate or in this case request help for others who are fighting for democracy and rights in other countries i'm going to end on one final question Given everything you outlined, you could work 120 hours a week, (laughs) not 40 hours a week. Uh, So how do you manage your work-life balance? In personal terms, Ryan, you know, yeah, we work hard. I mean, it would be foolish to try and tell you that at this level you work a a 35-hour week or a 40-hour week, even though we fight for the justice in that, because societies need balance and care. But I also, uh, I do take leave. People would say not enough. But uh, I have a hobby, which you I've seen you at the gym before. That, I'm putting that true. on the record. I do. I love to swim, and that's been a bit of an impossibility in the last two years. Coming from Australia, nothing like being in the water. But uh, you outed me. I have a hobby. And uh, when I can, I love a glass of red wine. But I also love to visit and meet the people who produce the wine. And I just spent 10 days touring around tasting wine in Italy. So, you know, that was my break at the end of July. But you have to have a social interest. Work-life balance is essential. And, you know, it sounds really soppy, but having people you care about and people who care about you is the heart of what a decent life's all about. So trade unionism for many, many millions of us is an extension of that. If you genuinely care about other people, if you genuinely think we should build inclusive futures, then that's returned in spades, frankly. Sharon Burrow, thank you for joining us on Global Insider. Thank you. 
And now for a glass and of wine. And now we've got the red wine. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, we have choices because it's so hot. Oh, well, what's I'm your recommendation? Yeah. So I have um, choices. Olivia Rheingold produces this show. Our editor and executive producer of audio is Irene Noguchi, and I'm Ryan Heath. Subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode of Global Insider. One more thing. If you have a second, fill out our survey. We're trying to learn more about our listeners and what you're looking for in a show. You can leave us some thoughts and insights at politico.com slash pod survey. That's P-O-D survey. We really appreciate it. And for the record, we drank a French white, Chablis, and an Italian red that Sharon picked up on a recent trip to Italy. The government of the United Arab Emirates did not respond to a Politico request for comment.